this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Up next, you're going to hear from Gabe Galvez, who started Merger Labs with Partner. Now, Merger Labs was in the business of selling marketing services, digital marketing services, to a specific niche. In his case, it was investment bankers and mergers and acquisitions professionals. He built it up and sold the company in a nice strategic exit. A couple of things that I really loved about this structure here. Uh, listen to Gabe as he talks about the seasonality component of the way he structured his earnout and the one regret he had. I love the story of how the Netflix show Narcos impacted his earnout. He'll let, I'll let him tell you that story. He talks about the importance of finding unique niche, productizing your service. Um, he also talks about this being in somewhat imperfect deal and and the dangers of trying to wait for the perfect deal in the case of being an entrepreneur. Lots of great stuff coming up from Gabe Galvez. Gabe Galvez, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. Yeah. So tell me about this company, Merger Labs. What did you guys do? You know, Merger Labs was sort of a um, an, an interesting exercise in taking two, well, a market and a business model that I think are conventionally perceived as being kind of boring and also uh, I think perceived as not being significantly valuable from a, an M&A perspective and making them into something that was worth more than the sum of its parts. So um, Merger Labs is um, a digital marketing agency, full service agency, not dissimilar to the agencies I'm sure you know, you and your listeners come across every now and again, with one big exception. Um, we were vertically focused in a market that is notoriously underserviced when it comes to digital uh, generally, and that is the um, M&A, the investment banking, and to a lesser extent, the private equity communities. So um, we're talking about helping elevate the presence of bankers and deal makers online which until we came along was essentially unheard of. Um, there's a few other companies that were kind of down market or have some, some products that um, definitely facilitate that lead gen conversation or that um, you know, kind of web forward conversation. But we were really the first and I believe still the only full service agency that exclusively services this deal maker community. Got it. So if I'm a boutique M&A firm and I wanted a company to build my website, make sure I was organically you know, popping up in searches on Google, maybe buy some keywords, I'd hire Merger Labs to do that? Indeed. And I mean, it could go as far as we develop a tremendous amount of content in the space, you know, ranging from 
Um, historically, we've done you know, ebooks and stuff like that, but more commonly, um, content marketing, um, kind of outbound content as well. So the vision was really, can we be a you know a one-stop shop for all things digital for a banker? And when we started, um, although this had to change as we grow or grew, and, and we can talk about it, we really took the adage to heart that we were bankers first because we all came from the space and that's how we were able to make some claim of expertise and marketeer second. Um, and that may have actually been a little bit of a strategic folly um, long-term because ultimately people were hiring us to be marketeers, not bankers. Um, and that feeds into our acquisition story a little bit uh, over time. Tell me how. Well, um, I know at some point in your conversations, you usually end up with this sort of why question mm -hmm, that gets, mm -hmm. gets asked. And, um, you know, having been a quote unquote serial entrepreneur for the majority of my career and having sold a few other businesses that, um, that I either founded or co-founded, um, we are most often just motivated by, uh, uh, you know, by money, right? I mean, we're kind of that cliche banker mentality, right? I just want to get paid. Um, but this instance was a little bit different because we had taken this approach of kind of banker first and expert first. Um, it in some instances allowed for there to be fulfillment deficiencies in our processes because we were, again, as a DNA of a company, we were all bankers first who learned about digital marketing through transacting and through consulting and all these things. Um, but as we grew, and we grew fairly quickly for a company that started with, you know, me in a room, quite literally, um, the why for us became systems started to strain to the point where we either would have needed to curtail growth um, very deliberately and just say, nope, we don't take on new clients until we've kind of fixed the, you know, the, the, some of these structural things, these processes, et cetera. Um, or we'd have to double down and, and, and fix those things in real time, which had a very real cost implication. Or the third option, which is the one we ultimately pursued, was let's find very deliberately a strategic buyer who is known for process implementation, controls, scale, and let's bring them a deal they can't say no to. Um, so starting with this idea of being kind of banker first, leading us to a point where we, um, due to growth, created you know, some of these you know, uh, self-fulfilling issues, uh, really the only path that I had the appetite for, because our parent company has a portfolio of a number of other companies and uh, Merger Labs was never something I was dedicated really full-time to, it only made sense for us to find somebody who could true up all of that stuff and allow us to double in size again the next year without me having to become a, you know, a marketing expert when, you know, I, I know some stuff, but that's really not where my focus was. What was the revenue you guys were at when you started to notice that the systems were starting to strain? Like wh what was your annual revenue number of employees were where it started to get untenable? You know, from an employee count standpoint, it was pretty modest, you know, I don't know, a half dozen employees or something. And that may sound very small, but again, if we view this through the guise of, you know, our then CEO, who was me, was not 
you know, I, I try not beat myself up on this too much because it worked out fine, but I wasn't, this wasn't my full-time job. And admittedly, it wasn't really my primary focus. Um, Merger Labs was started almost accidentally. Um, in fact, maybe I can deviate, just touch on that for a sec, because I think it'll sure. give us some context um, as to why things broke so early here, right? It sounds a little suspect. Um, so Merger Labs actually grew out of our or one of our other companies, CapTarget, which is also in the M&A and PE services space. And um, CapTarget does a lot of fulfillment, back office style fulfillment for these groups. And um, as we were growing, we looked to mitigate our client churn. And our number one reason for a client leaving was because deal flow was so volatile that they didn't have any work for us, right? They don't have clients. They don't need back office work to be done. So very selfishly, initially, we thought, what if there was a way to keep our clients busy all the time? If they're busy, they'll buy more stuff from us. And that became a little marketing initiative at CapTarget that um, ultimately, um, through CapTarget getting some, uh, we have a minority PE partner in our own right, and some other, some other things happened where we as a, a management group decided our focus should not be this little marketing division. And it spun off into its own entity that became sort of my side project slash baby. So which, because of that, I, I'm sorry, please. No, I was just going to say, which, which was named Merger Labs. Mm -hmm. Got yeah, it. Which was Merger Labs. So um, when we go back to your question of when did things start getting strained process-wise, for us, it was actually probably pretty early. It's probably 18 months into the company's existence with a half dozen guys running around. And that was largely because from an executive management perspective, it was not really a priority for me. And our team, who is largely still intact, did a tremendous job self-motivating and self-managing and self-regulating. But, I mean, let's call it what it is. You know, if you have only a, a half-engaged CEO, regardless of, of the why, um, that is going to impact some of these, you know, strategic directional process conversations, especially with a small team. So from a revenue standpoint, I mean, I don't know if we had hit a, a million dollars before realistically someone else should have been, you know, developing better systems, et cetera. So um, probably an extreme example or an extreme answer to the question that I know you ask and I've heard some great answers for. But for us, the circumstance was so unique that a lot of these things that would happen at more of a uh, either higher growth or more maturated middle market company happened to us as almost a, you know, post startup, high growth, small company because of our circumstance. So when you decided to sell, I mean, you, admittedly, you've gone through this many times before. Who did you think the natural buyers for Merger Lab, Labs were? You know, we looked, um, uh, you know, of course, we always think about PE buyers, and we love PE buyers because they're transactional, right? It's selling oranges in the produce section versus the side of the road. You know, I mean, we all know they're there to buy oranges, and they have the money, and they have the intent, and they know where the oranges are sold, and, you know, dot, dot, dot. Um, but for us, because we were so niche, and because I felt we needed a, a perspective on executive leadership that was lacking and probably not as conventional as sticking an operator in there, which is what PE would commonly do, pretty quickly we said, this has to be a strategic buyer. And it'll have to be somebody that has 
you know, the proven ability to run a scaled enterprise and deal with a fast growing enterprise, but has already done this and, um, and values the niche, you know, revenue stream we bring in, in this market that's almost impenetrable. Um, so when we initially decided that strategic route was where we wanted to go, uh, naturally you then tend to look at, you know, the biggest strategics around only to realize maybe we're not quite large enough or the circumstance was a little too alternative. And we ended up kind of making a deal happen, um, you know, thanks to our, our very, uh, you know, open and enterprising now um, owners and our parent company who uh, really just humored me to sit down in our now CEO's living room on a Sunday uh, because he answered my phone call that, that probably said, you know, hey, Mike, I've got a weird idea for you. Uh, do you have some time? Um, and we ended up meeting, and that became the start of a, a very deliberate process. So um, size, um, growth rate, location, and the, the niche you know, element needed a certain type of buyer. And for us, it became pretty apparent fairly quickly who would be the most accessible within that potential buyer pool simply based on our relationships and where we are and who we work with. So in other words, you identified Wonderist, the, the ultimate buyer, the, the holding company or the, the uh, parent company of Wonderist. You identified them and approached them directly? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know this is something that occasionally gets touched on on this show, but in a, in a broader sense, I feel like most of the acquisition stories we hear about um, are often kind of sugar-coated and, and are often presented as these kind of out-of-the-blue things. Oh, yeah, so-and-so bought us. And we often don't get a sense of how mechanically that really happens. But, you know, I have a little circle of, of similarly experienced entrepreneurs that I work with and, and friendly with. And everybody I know who's done deals in, you know, this more middle market size and scope, you know, the couple million to some tens of millions of dollars kind of size. They make those deals happen. They find a buyer, they package a deal, they really advocate for the transaction and they do whatever needs to be done to make that thing uh, work because the reality becomes, I didn't really want to deal with it. Um, I probably wasn't the best person to be running it. And every day that went by that we weren't addressing things appropriately was a day that we were missing out um, on, you know, new revenue. So we found who we thought was the best and we advocated heavily for them to acquire us, um, knowing they had some intent to acquire some other verticalized agencies um, just through some, you know, ears on the street. And we just focused on making that deal work. So what, so what, what does Wondrous do? I, for those of you, I mean, I, I didn't, I'd never heard of Wondrous uh, before I did a little research before. So what does the Wondrous agency do? So Wondrous is a, essentially a merger labs for the dental space. So the parent company that owns us both um, and another brand that does something similar in the legal space basically buys or builds verticalized digital marketing agencies. Um, in very funny little defensible areas. Um, and they've built a great business around, you know, this sort of very narrow slices of the pie. So although they had no expertise or my view, any real interest in the M&A space or the investment banking space, um, structurally, it still fit their model. 
right? Small market, you know, 10, 15,000 total customers, um, you know, difficult to penetrate, but not a lot of competition, if any, um, you know, track records, real sticky clients, um, uh, and a, a deficiency or a need for some scaled systems and some fulfillment expertise that was not, not fully a priority. So did you go, like, at what point, so it sounds like when you approach them, there was the initial, yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's another vertical we hadn't thought about, but, but yeah, it's got some of the same characteristics as dentists. How did the conversation proceed from there? I mean, did, did you kind of suggest a structure for the deal? Did they come up with a term sheet? How did that play out? Well, uh, we're probably a unique case because, again, we were bankers before we were anything. Um, so in our case, if my memory serves me correctly, and this wasn't that long ago, but so much has happened, um, I think I, I think I gave them an IOI with their name on it and said, you sign this if you want to do this deal or redline it or add some bullet points. And that's not to say they don't, you know, they didn't know what they were doing or anything like that. But I think I just kind of said, if this works for us and you, it will look close or at least similar to this sort of structure. IOI IOI, just so people are clear, indication of interest. I'm assuming that's Correct. what you mean, Gabe. Yeah. Okay. So so you kind of proposed an IOI. It usually happens the other way around, but obviously you, you you've been there, you know the, the deal. So you proposed that. What sort of deal terms were you proposing in the IOI? Well, we um I wanted to you know, of course we needed to be paid, um, but because we had this was not our, our principal business. And because we're pretty diverse, we had some flexibility when it came to payment terms and valuation metrics, um, you know, not to dilute the importance of what we had done and, and the good work our team had done. But, um, you know, we didn't live and die by this transaction, which is a very, uh, you know, a, a exceptional place to be in our own careers, uh, myself and my business partner and, and Merger Labs other co-founder. and. Um, so because of that, we focused on, you know, this kind of mutually beneficial, largely earnout driven model where we kind of said, look, you buy us, you eliminate a huge amount of cost and you elevate service on day one because they have this whole fulfillment team and, you know, a big facility and all these resources that create cost energies for, for us, or for our business division at that point. And we kind of said, look, you're going to save all this money. So why don't, uh, that money you save for a period of time, you just give to us. And in effect, we will uh, we'll buy ourselves out of this business by way of leveraging your synergy. Um, it wasn't in total that kind of transaction, but that was a significant piece that was kind of alternative to uh, a standard earnout. Um, so what was the so, earnout you know, tied to? What, what sort of metrics, future goals are you signed up to achieve? Um, there were, uh, you know, it was a revenue implication, kind of a growth and revenue implication, but that was it. It was pretty simple. It was, you know, let's hit these growth numbers and you're going to have, uh, you know, you're going to be paid at, at this cadence, uh, for, in our case, the earnout was actually pretty modest, uh, time-wise, uh, you know, I think half a year start to finish. Um, and, uh, and down the road we all went. So it was, a a very simplistic version of something that I think could have been a lot more complicated. Um, but in our case, you know, we just said, look, give us some money now. 
let the business throw off some money. Let us keep a lot of it, um, the lion's share of it, until it's kind of paid for itself. And then you'll have this kind of cash flow machine that is basically a revenue channel that has very minimal cost that you can uh, you know, grow through your own much more sophisticated biz devs and fulfillment capabilities. So short deal, little bit of cash up front, earn out component. Um, there is a employment kind of agreement component for me in there. Um, I now serve as Merger Labs uh, Chief Marketing Officer, which is something I'm hopefully a little more excited and adept at than running the whole organization on a part-time basis. Um, and um, we, but not to jump around, but this, this is important. Um, the deal was um, we did have some interest in the NUCO that was formed. So all the assets were transferred to NUCO. Um, merger Labs, you know, 1.0, Proto Merger Lab, still owns um, 20 plus percent of NUCO. So we still have some vested ownership. We still have a, um, a, a mechanism to get distributions. We still have employment agreements. So we're, we're still pretty vested um, by way of the future uh, and hitting these growth benchmarks. But all this stuff that I viewed as kind of not in my skill set is now in the hands of people that I view really as experts. And they've done a tremendous job post-integration. Um, it's exceeded my expectations you know, tenfold. Wow. So in terms of the deal structure to go back, what proportion of it was was kind of guaranteed versus earnout because some, we've heard some, especially in the agency world, that the the proportion on the earnout can be quite high. I, I've heard as much as seventy percent can be, yeah, to we be were sort right of at that. risk. So sort of thirty percent downstroke or sort of guaranteed, and then the balance tied to future performance. What's unusual to to me is such a short earnout. Tell me about why six months and how did you sort of get away with such a short time frame on the earnout? You know, this is um, it's probably totally silly, um, but I've been known to be a little silly. Um, at the time, I was watching the wonderful Netflix uh, original show Narcos, this Pablo Escobar story. Yeah. Um, Season two of Narcos is about his rival cartel, the Cali cartel, right? Some other Colombian drug lords. And, um, you know, never will I say let's model ourselves after any Colombian drug lords because we all know how that turned out. But uh, part of the second season was this cartel negotiating with the government a structured surrender and giving them this six-month window to make as much money as they wanted and keep it all. But at the end of that, they had to go to jail and all future earnings, they had to, you know, uh, they had to stop doing business and all this other stuff. And again, as silly as it sounds, I think watching Narcos all the time, I thought to myself, well, conceptually, this is great. Give me a short runway, but give me carte blanche by way of growth. Give me a team, give me the processes, give me all the support and tell me to go and make as much money as we possibly can without thinking about, um, you know, the fulfillment model. And let me keep most of that money, um, and down the road we'll go as more more of an employee uh, type relationship afterwards, and and a shareholder relationship afterwards. And uh, again, I mean, not to be flippant, that's not exactly where it came from, but there were some parallels there in timing and, and what we saw. And for us, you know, you do the math and say, okay, well, agencies usually trade on an EBITDA, uh, you know, multiple. 
Um, agencies historically have fairly low EBITDA margins, you know, five to 15, 18% EBITDA margins on the high end. Um, and the multiples are not crazy exciting. So we said, what if we did this more on the revenue side? And if we could continue to grow, say 50% um, every two quarters or 25% a quarter, well, that represents an earnout that's already 1x revenue annualized historically. So again, kind of you know, banker math here, but I thought if we could get some money up front or if we could, um, or and if we could kind of, you know, pro forma model out earning, you know, 1x revenue, well, heck, and leave the company in better shape and then be open to a distribution and some participation. That sounded good enough for me. And again, in this case, because we weren't living and dying by this transaction, we were willing to do a deal that, uh, again, not to paint it in any negative light because it's worked well, but we were willing to do a deal that was good enough. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs, both from you know, my banking life and from some of the private equity work we do, that really hold out for their perfect deal. And unfortunately, a lot of times those guys see higher failure rates of transactions. They see more deal fatigue that creates other issues. And we're pretty realist guys. So we went in and said, let's come up with something that really is mutually beneficial, easy to understand, will light a fire under us, but is also attractive enough for both parties to make a quick decision and get excited together to move forward. So in terms of the business model of what you guys did at Merger Labs, I'm struggling to understand, and maybe there are other listeners who are, are asking themselves the same question, is in an agency sort of context, growing by 50 or 100% in six months would cause mass chaos, right? Because it's a people business. It's, it it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not like turning on the widget maker to go 50% faster. It's, it's human beings and training and so forth. Like, how did you guys grow that quickly? Uh, just given the nature of what marketing agencies do. So we tried our very best and, and now I think do a better job in really productizing a service model. So for example, um, early on, you know, uh, rather than custom quoting relationships, we had three packages and they worked for most folks. For the folks that it didn't work for, they probably weren't in our target um, you know, audience to begin with. And we were able to build some automation, build some systems, build some um, you know, reproducible kind of things, uh, replicatable kind of things around only three services that had a finite scope that were billed on a recurring basis um, on quarterly or now annual agreements to create, you know, a little bit more stickiness and to give us a little more flexibility by way of what, when we're doing work. So by having this productized, what we call deliverable-based agency fulfillment model, you know what you're going to get as a customer because you get these five deliverables every month or whatever the case was. Um, but in turn, we knew all we had to do was those five things well. And they replicated themselves pretty well um, as client base grew. Now, uh, that's not to say your point is, is incorrect. I mean, there's still a butts and seats implication here. But by productizing, by not doing custom work, by not, um, um, you know, kind of one-off quoting, and by focusing on a audience that was new to digital marketing and could buy one of two or three options, 
um, it allowed us to mitigate the butts and seats need quite a bit. Got it. And so to go back to the actual deal terms, um, there was some cash up front, there was an earnout, and there was a a carry, meaning you you carried some equity into the new operating company. Is that right? Is that basically the three ways and, and an employment agreement for you? Correct. Sort of and the carry piece, I, I should know this, it's either 20 or 22%. So we're a significant minority uh, shareholder in the new co. In, in the new co, which is Merger Labs 2.0. Correct. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. And I think that's an important takeaway too, because, you know, I know we were in this position that could read as well. We weren't hyper-focused on the business or, or, you know, we had other opportunities that created some you know, focus issues, but um, by having that decent vested interest in the future of the company by way of our equity holding, it can allow me to hopefully provide higher value service to the company by way of, you know, thought leadership in the industry by way of understanding of compliance in the space. Um, and, you know, I still think about Merger Labs every day. I still do something for Merger Labs just about every day, although my role is, you know, again, it's changed. But I'll tell you, if that was just an earnout and it was maybe a two-year earnout instead of a half a year, or it was a 100% buyout, full cash at close deal, I, you know, I, I, I hate to admit it, but I would be checked out fully. So I like that they decided on a model that allows us to have some upside. And um, this next month, well, this month, excuse me, this is July, um, we get our first you know, distribution check, post earnout distribution check. So to go from ending the earnout to getting a distribution you know, pretty seamlessly is a great motivator for me. You sound like a pretty entrepreneurial guy. How do you feel about being an employee again? Well, um, I think it's a means to a certain end, right? I mean, there's a finite nature to this engagement, um, and I'm okay with that. Um, and I just so happen to be working with folks that have become friends of mine now. Um, you know, friendly before, um, and and I think that's you know definitely helps. Um, but you know, I'm a bit of an outside cat, as they say, and I'll admit that, you know, I don't consistently go to the uh, ops meetings and it's hard to get me to, you know, sit through some of the meetings and some of that stuff that comes with being the master of your own domain for so long is behavior that's really hard to change. And our new owners have just been really gracious about understanding that sort of who I am and that the value I add is significant enough to give me a little bit of slack with some of the formalities of being an employee. I think I got really lucky there. Um, the short answer to your question is, I don't really like being an employee. But again, in this case, they've made some accommodations that allow it to be um, you know, a little less painful for me. What might you have changed if you had the, the wondrous sort of deal to do all over again, knowing what you know now, what might you have done differently if you could do it all over again? You know, there is probably a timing consideration that should have been looked at a little harder. Um, selling into the M&A community, particularly, there's some cyclicality and some seasonality that if you're tying, um, you know, your earn out to performance, 
should be considered. Um, I don't think it's a, you know, a, a really huge deal, but it does matter. You know, we kind of were looking at the calendar and saying, wouldn't it be nice to do something on Jan 1 or December 31st, mostly for tax? Um, Jan 1 was the close date for everybody who's worried about tax, uh, kicking that can down the road. But uh, I think we should have probably taken into account the value of our pipeline and how it relates to timing. And I think we could have squeezed a little more juice out of the thing um, before transacting and, um, you know, made it work. But again, uh, who's to say, you know, again, we had some strange systems. We had uh, some other opportunities professionally that were allowing us to look elsewhere for things to do. Um, And I I do think it worked quite well. Um, I've absolutely been party to transactions where everybody sues everybody at the end and nobody gets paid. And it takes five years to resolve. Um, and and you know, I'm sure some of your listeners have lived through that too. And I don't wish that on anybody. So in the broader context, when I think about total disaster deals and pretty easy deals that work well, I definitely put this in the easy and well bucket. But if we had a little bit more of a uh, consideration for timing, I think we would have tweaked things a bit. Hmm. Good tip. So the idea of of, of saying... Just because of the seasonality, you've got you've got people working on deals, not thinking about marketing. So there may have been deals in your pipeline that you that you landed sort of after uh, that you that you could have possibly put into your earnout. Is that is that what you're thinking? Yeah, and just from a close time and close um, uh, like days to close rate, what happened for us, and this is just a reality. I don't think this is you know anybody's fault. It's just how the business works. On Jan 1, we had access to this great team, new team, new toys, new tools, new insights, really wonderful stuff that they do very well, um, which was an incredible blessing for us to have access to, toys we never had before. Um, But what happened with that is we built a pipeline that was the largest in our company's history by an exponent of three, I think, two or three, big pipeline. People were excited about the announcement, the new toys, the new tools, the new pricing, all this, you know, great new stuff that we now do um, per usual. But because of that seasonality and a few other macro factors, the time to close extended quite a bit. And that may have actually impacted our earnout measurably because we didn't have access to really accelerate growth until the deal closed. But once the deal closed, the clock was ticking on when we stopped being a significant share um, on the revenue side. So it was a little bit of a mixed blessing. It allowed us to scale sales significantly, but somebody, or I don't want to say somebody other than me because I still participate, but it likely diluted how much of that new scale we got to keep. What would you expect a marketing agency, a niche marketing agency to trade at in terms of a multiple of, of EBITDA? You know, I think the niche in itself is probably a value driver, kind of an intangible one, but I think it matters. Um, for us, I think one of our big drivers was that there was essentially no competition. So we had this little greenfield kind of moment in time for a couple of years. But for other niche agencies, um, Again, you know, how defensible, how unique, um, and how many other customers they have uh, playing in their space. Um, but beyond that, I think any agency that has the demonstrated ability 
to retain clients long-term on a recurring revenue basis in a replicable um, application um, are going to see higher multiples. I've seen and expect fairly modest, maybe not so niche agencies trade at boring numbers, you know, 3x EBITDA still in this crazy market. Um, But I've seen really defensible niche ones that have cool software um, or have some real sticky element trade for nine times EBITDA or two or three times revenue. Um, so it's a wide range that largely depends on, I think, how unique and how defensible their little business unit is. For sure. And then of that nine times or three to nine times, depending on sort of what you, you know, whether they have the defendable market position, et cetera, et cetera, like what proportion of that would you expect to get up front versus for, for folks who own agencies that, that they're thinking of selling? What proportion would be sort of at risk in some sort of earnout? I think in the agency world, and I've worked for some agencies, but I don't claim to be some agency expert. Again, this was all kind of accidental, and I was lucky to have the accident, but still. Um, I would say expect at the minimum to carry a 30% note or something similar. But I think as a standard right now, uh, especially given the slightly elevated nature of valuations across the whole middle market, that 50% is not uncommon. 60% is not crazy. Um, so it's going to be a good chunk for all of you agency guys out there. And They're to find at- an all-cash buyer is almost impossible for an agency right now. Right. So 50 to 60% quote-unquote at risk in either an earnout or some sort of uh, uh, structured deal where the payment is not necessarily up front. Yes, I think you need to have an appetite for some continued skin in the game, as they say, more so than if it was a you know business services company or a manufacturing outfit. Um, it's a unique business that requires a little bit more of an appetite for that that burnout at risk type uh, model. Got it, Gabe. It's fantastic. I um, I appreciate you sharing your story. Where do people? Where can people go to learn more about you? About Merger Labs? What's the best way to get in touch? You know, folks can get a hold of me by way of Merger Labs. Um, you can visit our website at Merger Labs, all one word, MergerLabs.com. Um, but I can also be reached at Gabe, G-A-B-E, at MergerLabs.com, uh, as well as, you know, found on LinkedIn. And I'm associated with almost too many companies to list, which is uh, kind of comical. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Merger Labs or track me down on the internet and um, I'm always happy to engage in this conversation with folks in a similar position, and um, hopefully what we've lived through can, uh, uh, and along with folks like you who can evangelize the nuts and bolts of this stuff, can help uh, the next guy do it you know, better and easier than, than we've all done it in the past. Gabe Galvez, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow. 
W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.